The scripture this morning is from Hebrews chapter 12, so go ahead and turn there if you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, look at the chair pocket in front of you. You might find one on your row. Uh, But turn to Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Hebrews is a letter written to Christians who were once extremely passionate about their faith, who were once extremely excited to follow Christ wherever that may lead. They were excited to carry the torch for Christ. But now these Christians are not as excited. These Christians are not as passionate. These Christians are not as willing to sacrifice all and follow him to pick up their cross and do as he did. So Hebrews is a, is a letter written to Christians who were once extremely passionate about God, but now not so much. And we can obviously relate to this as Christians today. Uh, you know, at, at one time in our life, we were really excited to wake up early and go to church on a Sunday morning. We were really excited to read our Bible, to pray, to 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 be with other Christians and to talk about real stuff and pray for one another. And at times in our lives, we're not that excited. We were once really passionate. And so we can relate to this. And so here's a challenge in Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2, to the Christians back then. And these Christians, they were going through great persecution as well. And so you can imagine Christians who are experiencing great suffering would be not as excited to continue to experience great suffering for Christ's behalf. And so here's a challenge to the Christians back then who were lackluster in their faith. And this is the same challenge for us today who are lackluster in our faith. So let's read God's word. But before we do that, let's ask him for his help. God, we thank you for these words. We thank you for this challenge. And I pray, Lord, that the words that we read And the words that are spoken here this morning from the stage um, would be words that your spirit would use to correct us where we need correcting. Words to rebuke us where we need to be rebuked. Lord, words to train us where we need to be trained in the ways of righteousness. God, we ask your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In the 1992 Summer Olympics, there was a runner named Derek Redmond. He was an English runner, and he's a 400-meter runner. He's, he's racing the 400-meter race. What you need to know as a, as a backdrop just a little bit, in the 88 Olympics, in the previous Olympics, he was also going to run in the Olympics, the 400-meter race, a really talented runner. Uh, in fact, he held the the record in England for the fastest 400-meter time. So this was a legit runner, very talented, and very highly respected and had high hopes in the 88 Olympics. 
just minutes before his opening heat, his opening race, he hurts his Achilles. Minutes before he was going to represent his country, minutes before he was going to fulfill his lifelong dream to represent his country and to run for them in the Olympic Games, he hurts his Achilles. Couldn't run. He trained relentlessly the next four years. He had many procedures done to help his Achilles, to help other injuries, but he trained relentlessly, and he was in tip-top shape coming into the 92 Olympic Games. Just to give you an idea how good of a runner he was and how good England was at the time, in the 91 World Championships, England beat the U.S. in the 4x400 relay, and Derek Redman was a part of that team. So in the 92 Olympics, you can imagine the hopes that Derek had coming into the race. He gets to his opening heat, 92 Olympics, four years later, gets to his opening heat, and he doesn't get injured. He runs. He runs. And he runs fast. He actually recorded the fastest time in the opening heat out of anyone. He does well in the opening heat. He does well in the next couple of rounds. He, he, he wins his quarterfinal round. He gets to the semifinal round. And halfway through the race, he's doing really well. Halfway through the race, it was as if somebody shot him in the back of the leg. He tore his hamstring. Tore his hamstring. And you can just see this guy at full sprint and just come up, grab his leg in just agony, and fall. he fell to the ground out of just sheer pain. And immediately the medic team rushes out with a stretcher ready to cart him off. And, he, and, he, and he's there, and the medic team's there, and he says no. He waves them off. And you can see this in a video, by the way. Just search YouTube, Derek Redman. You can see this in a video. He waves them off, and, he, and he, he, he gets up off the ground, and he just starts hobbling. He just starts hobbling. He grabs his leg. He can only be on one foot, basically, and he starts hobbling. Pretty incredible, right? Well, it gets even more interesting. Because while he's hobbling, a man jumps from the stands onto the track, and he runs toward Derek Redman. And you can imagine the crowd, and even you, you're like, oh, no, what's about to happen? It's usually not, not anything good when somebody from the stands comes on to the track. He runs towards Derek Redman, and by this time, security realizes what's happening. They get in this man's way, and this man barges right through security. He's not having anything of the security trying to stop him. He gets to Derek Redman, and he puts his arm around him, and he supports him the rest of the race. Later, we find out that that man was Jim Redman, Derek's father. And so you can imagine, by the end of the race, 65,000 people in the stands to their feet, cheering, amazed by the, the scene that they see before them. You see, Derek Redman, despite injury, ran the race that was set before him. And Derek Redman, despite injury, finished the race that was set before him. As Christians, we're called to run a race. As Christians, we're called to run the race that God has set before us. 
And, and, and if you look at verse 1, it immediately starts talking about this cloud of witnesses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and, and the sin which clings so, so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We have this cloud of witnesses surrounding us. It's always a little confusing to think of a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. What, what is that? Who, who are they? And because of the therefore, the first word, you have to look backwards. And if you look at chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11 is often called the hall of faith. Men and women who had incredible faith, who ran the race, who finished the race, and now are in glory. And these are the witnesses that make up the cloud. These are the people, the men and women of faith. It's, it's Noah. It's Abraham. Moses, it's Sarah, it's Rahab, it's Deborah. These are the cloud, this is the cloud of witnesses that surrounds us. And so if you can imagine the 65,000 people standing and cheering Derek and Jim Redman on, we have a cheering section. We have men and women of the faith that have gone before us that make up this cloud of witnesses that surround us and encourage us and cheer us on. But they're not just spectators, like, like the crowd at the Olympics. They're former runners. They're former athletes. They're former, they're former runners who have run the race. They know what it's like to, to try to live for God in a world where there's so many eye-catching idols all around us. They know what it's like to try the struggle to live for God in a godless age. They know what that's like. And so they are surrounding us and they are cheering us on to run the race that is set before us. What is this race? It's just simply a faithful life to God. A faithful life where we love God with all of our heart and we love others as ourselves. This is not breaking news. If you've been around the church at all, you know you're called to love God with all your heart. You know you're called to love others as yourselves. This is the race that we've all been called to as believers. So, so why is this so hard? What's the problem? The problem is fatigue. In any race, you struggle with fatigue. In this Christian life, we experience great fatigue. And it's actually expected of us to get tired or else there wouldn't be instructions in the word of God to run. Because we struggle with fatigue, oftentimes instead of running hard for God, we just want to walk a little bit. We like to take a break from living passionately for God. And, 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 and sometimes, just like the Christians back then, sometimes we walk away. We, we just give up on the race. We say, you know what, it's too hard. It's too tiring. I'm tired for living for God when it gets me nothing where it gets me nowhere, I see my friends around me and see how carefree that they live life and how happy they seem to be and how they don't have to struggle with fighting their sin on a daily basis. Yeah, that sounds pretty good right now. And, and so we, we give up the notion. We, we get tired. We experience fatigue. In this race that we're called to run, you may have heard that the Christian life is, like, is not like a sprint, you may have heard this. Christian life is not like a sprint, but like a marathon. 
because it's not a, you know, a short sprint, but it's a long race. I just want to add one word to that to make it more accurate. Now, that's a true statement. It's like a marathon. But I just want to add one more word to that that I think helps get a better notion of what the Christian life is like. And I would say this. The Christian life is not like a sprint, but it's like a never-ending marathon. It's a hyphenated word, but one word. Christian life is like a never-ending marathon. Because even a marathon, now I've never run a marathon, and I don't plan to, I think it's weird, but even, even running a marathon only lasts a day. You may train for months beforehand, you may be sore for weeks afterwards, but we're just talking months of training and one day of racing. Even a marathon just lasts a day. The Christian life, often, not always, but often, lasts years and even decades. And we're called to love God with all of our heart of every second, of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year, of every decade that he, he has us alive on this, uh, in, in this world. The Christian life is like a never-ending marathon. And so in this passage, here's what God is calling us to. God is calling all believers to run a never-ending marathon. Now, just the, raw, just the thought of running a marathon, as you can already tell, uh, makes me kind of sick to my stomach. The thought of running a never-ending marathon, it's just even hard to process. So how do we survive if we're talking about a never-ending marathon, how do we not only survive, how do we thrive? What are we supposed to do in this race? And how, how in the world are we able to, to run this race that we've been called to? Just like the cloud of witnesses, just like those who have gone before us who have run the race and finished the race, we are inspired by their stories, and we are inspired to do the same things that they did. And here's what they did. And here's what we're called to do. Three things. First, we must lose the excess weight. In order to run this never-ending marathon, we must lose the excess weight. Secondly, we must lay aside sin. So not only lose the excess weight, we must lay aside sin. And third, we must look continually to Jesus. Let's look at this first thing that we must do in this race. We must lose the excess weight. Now, an excess weight, you can see in verse 1, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight. What is a weight? What, what is an excess weight? Well, an excess weight is something that's not a sin in itself, but it's something that would be foolish to take with you on a race or to carry with you or to carry on you while you're running. Something in your life that saps your energy for God. Something in your life that distracts you from your life lived out unto God. If you are running a race, let's say there's a 5K next weekend, which is 3.1 miles. If you're running a race next weekend, and there's a race. I'm going to give you some advice. Now, I'm not a runner. You already know that. But I have some pretty good advice, and I suggest you consider it 
because this is some advice that you won't get in any runner's blog or runner's magazine. This is really good advice, and I highly advise you to follow it. Here it is. In the race next weekend, do not run it wearing full medieval body armor. That's my advice. And we chuckle because it would be foolish. Now, there's probably some 5K with a theme of medieval body armor wear or something like that. But it would be foolish to run a race wearing full medieval body armor. Why? Because it's heavy, because it's clunky, because it's, it would get in the way, it would hinder you from running fast and free. And, and we look at that and we're like, well, duh, of course you shouldn't wear that. Of course you shouldn't wear full medieval body armor while you're running a race. But don't we do the same thing? Don't we carry around things that just get in the way, that, that sap our energy, that, that make it really, really hard to run fast and free unto God, to run the race that is set before us? It's the same reason why you see marathon runners or long-distance runners in the Olympics. They are rail thin. They have no body fat and they have no muscle. Now, muscle is really good and bulky muscle is really cool, but not for long-distance running. Why? Because muscle and fat, they just get in the way. They weigh you down. They sap you on a long run. Just like runners, we are not to carry anything that weighs us down. We are to lose any excess weight. I think when we're evaluating whether something is, is good or bad for us to do or to be involved in, when we're thinking, okay, is this a good thing or a bad thing, we often ask one question in order to determine whether something is good or bad. Whether something, you know, we know we're called to glorify God. We're no, we know we're supposed to live for him. So is this good for me to do or is this bad for me to do? The one question we ask is, is this a sin or not? Great question to ask, by the way. Is this a sin or not? That's the one question we ask. And if we say in our mind or we think in our minds, okay, it is a sin, we know, okay, it's bad, and we shouldn't do it. Or if we determine through the word of God that it's not a sin, we say in our minds, okay, it's not a sin, then it's okay for me to do or it's good for me to do. So if it's a sin, yes, it's bad. If it's not a sin, it's good or at least okay. But this passage is calling us to ask a second question when we're evaluating whether something's good or bad for us. Yes, the number one question and first question we should ask is, is it a sin? Because there's your easy answer if it is. Then, okay, it is bad. But here's the second question that this passage calls us to ask. Does this thing or is this commitment going to slow me down? So not only is it a sin, but is it going to slow me down? Is it going to take away from the race? Is it going to take away from what I'm called to do to glorify God and to, and to enjoy him forever in all the days of my life, wherever he puts me? Is this good or bad? Well, if it takes away your energy, if it saps your en energy, if it distracts you, if it gets in the way, it's bad. Because scripture is calling us to lose it. Lose the excess weight. So what is weighing you down? What is getting in your way? What is sapping your energy? It could be 
physical exercise. It could be working out. Scripture talks about how working out is of some value. But spiritual training, spiritual exercise is of eternal value. So maybe working out, it's a good thing, but it, it saps your energy and it takes away where your spiritual life gets neglected. Maybe it's a hobby. Maybe it's something you just love to do. And there's nothing wrong with a hobby, but if it gets in the way, if it saps your energy, then it is bad. And Scripture calls us to lose it. Maybe it's a relationship you have. You're so focused. Every thought of every day goes towards this person, this friend, this relationship, that you just can't think about anything else. At that point, it's an excess weight. It's taking you away from the race. Maybe it's a job. You're so obsessed with your job and success and and, and earning more money or getting a higher position of power that it takes away from the race. Maybe it's grades. I know it's summer break, but maybe it's grades. You're so focused on grades. One excess weight for me is television. Now, watching TV is not bad. But an excess weight for me in my life can be TV. Uh, Sometimes I'm able to watch a full season of television in a matter of a week or two, thanks to Netflix. Right? Now, I'm not telling you to feel guilty every time you watch TV because you're like, oh, I'm, I'm watching TV today. I could be loving God or loving my neighbor. Oh, great. Thanks a lot, Devin. I'm not telling you to feel guilty every time you watch TV. I'm not telling you that if you watch a certain number of hours per week of television, then you know for sure it's an excess weight in your life and that you have to lose it. I'm not saying any of that. But the Holy Spirit comes and he, and he convicts us and he lets us know. He reveals to us and he revealed to me, yes, this, is, this does take away from the race. This does take away. This does distract me. It's a challenge of priorities, isn't it? What, what or who do you love the most? Now, there are extreme cases, if all you can do is watch television, where you need to get rid of the television. There are extreme cases where if all you can do is play on your phone and browse the Internet, then you need to look into just getting rid of that. There are extreme cases, sure, But it's a challenge of priorities. Who or what do you love the most? So we need to lose the excess weight. Secondly, we must lay aside our sins. Go back to verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Sin. Sin is anything you do or say, or think that is against God's word, that doesn't line up with what he says. So when God says, don't lie, and you do, that's a sin. When God says, love me with all you got, and you don't, that's a sin. When God says, don't covet or be jealous of your neighbor's car, or neighbor's family, or a relationship someone else has, And you do, that's a sin. And 
I could go on and on. You get the idea. Anything you do, say, or think that goes against God's word. Sin trips us up. Sin can be more, can be easier to identify than the excess weights in our life. Sin can be easier to identify, but they can also be harder to lay aside or to lose. And sin does more damage, too, because it trips us up. It clings so closely. Pastors, it clings so closely. You can see how hard it is to get rid of something that just clings. You can see how hard that might be. I read of a story of two pastors eating lunch. And, and, and at some point in their conversation, they talk uh, about, a, about a mutual friend. And this friend was also once in the ministry along with them. And one pastor said to the other, I know everyone can fall. I know everyone could be tempted by sin and everyone can fall. But how can our friend, how could our friend think he could get away with what he did? Their friend fell hard. And one, they're just confused. How can... How can our friend, how could he have done it and tried to get away with it? And this friend is now out of the ministry. The other pastor, without a blink, without hesitation, answers his friend by saying this. Because sin makes us stupid. It's kind of an abrupt statement. Sin makes us stupid. How else can you explain a pastor falling away from the ministry? How else can you explain David, a man after God's own heart, committing adultery and murder? How else can you explain the reckless choices of a guy like Samson? How else can you explain the public denials that Peter had of Christ, one of Christ's disciples? How else can you explain these things other than the fact that sin makes us stupid and make poor Choices. You want to know why sin is so hard to lay aside? Why it's so much harder than the excess weights? It's because we love it so much. We love our sin. If we didn't love it, we wouldn't be tempted by it. The fact that we so desire and so love it is the reason why we are so tempted by it and we cannot lay it aside because it clings to us and we love it. And so the only way that you are going to be, to, to be able to lay aside your sin is if sin somehow loses some of its appeal. And the only way sin is going to lose some of its appeal in your life is if something better comes along, if a better offer comes along. The love and grace of God is that better something. The love and grace of God is that better offer. And when you experience his love, you experience his grace, then sin loses some of its appeal. Then Jesus and what he did becomes amazing and you want to Follow him wherever he leads you. And laying aside sin, you can do. Losing excess weight, you can do because you are so in love 
with a Savior who loved you first. And so thirdly, we must continually look to Jesus. So, so, so what are we supposed to do in the race? Lose excess weight, lay aside sin. How? How do we do that? We know it's hard. How do we do it? We must look continually to Jesus. He is our strength. He is our power source, our source of strength in order to lose excess weights in our life, in order to lay aside sin. Because simply knowing what trips us up or what weighs us down or what sins we have in our life, simply knowing that is one thing. But, but doing something about it, but pulling it off to actually lose it or lay it aside is a whole other thing. The strength to change does not come from within. It does not come from my strength. It does not come from my willpower or my resolve. Because if it did, I would fail. How do I know that? Well, if I, if I do a nice little mid-year review on my New Year's resolutions, you know those things you make a long time ago, that... Either we've forgotten about or some of you don't even make New Year's resolutions. And that proves my point because you're like, it's futile. There's no way I'm going to keep it anyways. Why? Because, because your New Year's resolutions oftentimes are, are you saying to yourself, okay, Devin, do something better with your life. You know, all right, Devin, look within and do something better. Lay aside this or lose that. And I look at my New Year's resolutions and I see that I've abandoned pretty much all of them and failed at all of them. And so what, what's the conclusion? The conclusion is my inner strength won't cut it when it comes to real change in my life. So how is this time going to be any different? Thanks be to God that we are not left to look within for the strength to lay aside our sins and our excess weights. Look at verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We are to continually look to Jesus. He is our source. He is our power source of real change. Scripture, verse 2, gives us two reasons to look to him continually. One, he's our example. And two, he's our enabler. First, he's our example. The very thing we are challenged to do, the very race that we're called to run, Jesus has run perfectly. And not only has he run the race perfectly, he had to run a race infinitely harder than the one we're called to run. And he performed perfectly. And he finished the race. He finished the race perfectly. We're called to run with great endurance, with great perseverance. Guess what? Jesus endured perfectly. He endured the cross. And not only the cross, he endured living in a fallen world and yet without sin. He endured the trials that go along with living in this world, and he endured the shame and the suffering, the pain, 
the public humiliation. He endured all that perfectly in his race. And he did it for us. Not only did he endure all these things, look at verse 2. He did it with joy. Looking at Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The shame. Jesus was able to endure perfectly with joy, out of joy, because he had his eye on the prize. He had his eye on what was to come. Yes, we suffer now. Yes, we have trials now. Yes, it is extremely hard to run this race, but we must keep our eyes on the prize. And Jesus' prize, he gets the the chair right next to God the Father. The most coveted seat in all the heavens and the earth. He is seated now at the right hand of God the Father. He had his eyes on the prize, and so he could endure such struggles with joy. Jesus is our ultimate example of faithfulness, and we ought to look to him. But we need more than just an example to follow. We need someone who will help us and give us the power to run and not grow weary. And when we do grow weary, which we will, which Scripture expects of us to grow weary, and when we grow weary, we need someone who is willing to hop out of the stands and come to us and get us to that finish line. So not only is he our example, he's our enabler. And I mean this in the most positive sense. We usually think of it as a negative term. Oh, he enables me or she enables me. I mean this in the most positive sense because someone who is an enabler is someone is a person who makes something possible. Jesus is the one who makes our race possible. He makes it possible for us to start the race. He makes it possible for us to continue running. And he makes it possible for us to finish the race. He's our enabler. By looking to Jesus and the shame and suffering he experienced, when we look at what he did for us, guess guess what the result will be? When we fix our eyes on what he did, the result for us will be love. We will see a bleeding Savior who bled for us and we will fall in love. And when we fall in love with a Savior, we'll do anything for him. We'll run hard. We'll lose excess weight. We'll lay aside sin. We'll do it because we love him so much. And look what he did for me. He experienced shame for me, suffering for me. We will be empowered by love to run and not grow weary. I said before, the only way sin loses its appeal is if something or someone better comes along. He has come along. His name is Jesus, and Jesus is better. That's the whole theme of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. And so we fix our eyes on him as we run the race. Corrie Ten Boom was a Dutch Christian. She lived during the Holocaust. And her and her family participated in the act of protecting Jews from the Nazis, hiding Jews in their house. Corey Ten Boom and her family were caught. They were sent to the Holocaust. 
they were sent to the concentration camp. Excuse me. They saw, Corey Ten Boom saw the most inhumane evil, the most wicked acts a man could do to another man. She witnessed all of this. Just days before her and her family's release, her sister dies in that concentration camp. Just days before her release. So not only did she see the wickedness, she also saw her sister pass away because of this concentration camp. She was released and she was able to tell her story. And here's what she said. If you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. But if you look at Jesus, you'll be at rest. This makes me think of the hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Corey Ten Boom joined the great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us. She ran the race that was set before her, and she finished the race. And now she is in the cloud cheering you and I on in this race, encouraging us. Derek Redman, the British runner for the Olympics, 92, was severely injured and fell to the ground in great pain, but Derek Redman finished the race that was set before him. His father made sure of it. Believers, yes, we will be injured. Yes, we will be tried, tested, fatigued, and we will fall, but we will Finish the race that is set before us. Our Heavenly Father will make sure of it. So let us remember that beyond the daily struggle to live for God faithfully in this world, there is a crown awaiting us in eternal glory. There is a finish line, and the prize is unlike anything you've ever experienced. So let us run with endurance this ongoing marathon that God calls us to. Let us throw off anything that hinders us from running fast and free for the Lord. And let us always look to Jesus as our example and as our source and fountain of strength, endurance, and ability to run. Let's pray. Lord, we know according to your word, that a righteous man falls seven times and yet gets back up while the wicked are swept away into ruin. Lord, we know as believers that we will fall over and over and over and over again. But Lord, because of you, because of your strength, because we put our faith in you and not in ourselves, We will run and not grow weary. We will finish the race. Lord, you also promise in your word that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. So, Lord, thank you for what you did for us. May we fall 
more and more in love with you. May we see you as lovely and as better than anything else. And may we run the race with your help. In Jesus' name, amen.